Free-thinking atheist witchy farmer, herbalist, wise woman, obia woman, healer, off-grid homesteading hedge witch, living close to nature, black Hispanic, Afro-Latina, Jamaican, Honduran, Caribbean American, honoring and embodying the spirit of Queen Nanny of the Maroons, born in the inner city of Boston, educated and came of age in the affluent Metro West suburbs, escaped to beautiful, rural, central Massachusetts in 2015. Welcome to Sweet Sage Homestead. Dead Farm and Path of a Green Witch podcast. My name is Andrea. Remember, Black Lives Matter and love is love. This audio might prove to be unusable because I'm sick and really congested. I'm going to try to sound as clear as possible, but I am sick and that is a problem. <laughs> Today is February 10th, 2021, and I want to intro my podcast with a bonus episode where I talk about a very important ancestor, Queen Nanny of the Maroons, and I will give lots of context and background about her. She is very important to me. I feel like I get strength from her spirit, from the way she moved through the world when things were very, very difficult for people like her and like me. Queen Nanny of the Maroons lived in Jamaica around the early to mid 1700s. She was born around 1685 and died around 1750. There are numerous articles that I'm going to pull information from and at the end of this podcast, I'm going to include a poem that I found on YouTube that I thought was very nicely done. There's a cool drum beat behind it. It's really cool. So I will definitely give full credit to the person who created the poem, the video. We are maroons, and we're not freer than no one. We are maroons, and we're brave and strong. Queen Nanny, and you big boat, yeah, Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor, Queen Nanny. I am big boat, yeah, Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor. Okay, so that's a little bit. That was just a little little tease, a little taste of what I'm going to play at the end. Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor, Queen Nanny. So <laughs> before I get into that, though, um, that is the way we have kept her memory alive through poems and stories and basically what you would call oral history because she was someone who fought hard against the British and the British were our oppressors and they were the people who were able to write history or rewrite history. And obviously they were never going to paint her in a positive light or maybe never even speak of her at all. So thankfully the Maroons and the enslaved people kept her memory alive through oral history. And we have to rely heavily on that for a lot of the information about her life. So please keep that in mind. I do appreciate when people bring her memory to life through art. I have a strong appreciation for that. A lot of times, some of the things they say may not be spot on accurate, but because we can't really know the exact details in most cases, you know, we just kind of go with it because there are conflicting stories about how and when Nanny died. And there are conflicting stories about certain aspects of her life as well. So we don't really know whether she was born in Jamaica or in Ghana. We do know that she definitely lived in Jamaica for a time. 
Let's get into some of the articles. So the first one I'm going to start with is from a website called slaveryandremembrance.org. So they report that Nanny was born around 1685 and died around 1750. She is celebrated in Jamaican poems, portraits, and she's actually on the $500 bill in Jamaica. The Jamaican $500 bill features a rendering of Queen Nanny's face. So I'm not sure if that's what she actually looked like, but she has definite Negro features. And I have to say Negro features because I've tried to be politically correct and say African features. And people are like, what does that mean? Because we know that there are very different looking people who come from Africa. So just for clarity's sake, I'm going to use the term Negro features. She was a black woman like me. I also have Negro features. I don't mean that in a derogatory sense at all. I am just trying to be clear that this is a black woman we are talking about. A woman from Western Africa, from Ghana, a member of the Asante. I actually encourage everyone to Google Queen Nanny of the Maroons and you can have a look at what her image looks like. I will try to include a photo of her, maybe from the Jamaican $500 bill as the cover art for this podcast episode. Hopefully that will help. So let's get into this article. Nanny of the Maroons is an iconic figure in Jamaican history. Her legacy has been celebrated in poems, portraits, and on the Jamaican currency. Much of what is known about Nanny is the product of historical documents, historical memory, and folklore. So we take all of those together and we're able to provide a sketch of this remarkable woman's life. Much of Nanny's early life is unknown, including her birthplace. So we don't know whether she was born in Ghana or in Jamaica. What is certain, though, is that she and other enslaved people sought refuge from a brutal slave society. So they went to the mountains of Jamaica, where together they established a maroon community. In 1720, Nanny had become the leader of a maroon settlement called Nanny Town, which was located in the Blue Mountain region. At the same time that Nanny headed this community, her contemporaries, Kujo, Akampong, Kufi, and Kweko, led other maroon communities in Jamaica. But the nature of Nanny's relationship to those other guys is not known. What we do know is that they were all men. She was the only woman. Nanny trained her maroon warriors in the art of guerrilla warfare. It is also said that she was a great Obia woman and worked magic to protect her warriors from their British enemies. The British fought Nanny and her maroon troops from 1728 to 1734. In 1734, British commander Stoddard destroyed Nanny Town and claimed to have killed all of the Maroons residing there. In fact, Stoddard had not destroyed the Maroons, nor did he kill Nanny. Nanny and some of the survivors took refuge, it is believed, near the Rio Grande in Jamaica. In 1739, another Maroon leader, Kujo, signed a peace treaty with the British. Later, as a result of that treaty, Nanny and her Maroons were granted 500 acres of land upon which to settle. The settlement that emerged on this land was dubbed New Nanny Town. Nanny likely died around 1750. Even though the details of Nanny's life are shrouded in mystery, 
Her legacy is strong. She remains a symbol of resistance and power in Jamaican history. That was an article from slaveryandremembrance.org. They actually go a little deeper into the history of slavery. They say resistance is the story of slavery itself. From the first moment of attack and capture in their homeland, Africans sought to escape from bondage. On the trek to the Atlantic coast while bound together by ropes and other equipment, Individuals tried to escape their captors. In the trading forts, castles, or barracoons along the African coast, men and women attempted to escape and fight back. Aboard anchored slave ships before departure to the Americas, they tried to mutiny or flee. Resistance to slavery continued at every turn in the Americas as well. Newly arrived Africans and their descendants fled from forced labor, harsh punishment, torture, abuse, and the threat of family separation, sometimes alone, sometimes with others. They sought reunion with loved ones, sanctuary in hills or swamps, or freedom outside the confines of slave society. Often, slave owners knew where enslaved people were heading and advertised accordingly for their return. Collective resistance could take the form of secret networks to freedom, as with the Underground Railroad in North America, or communications networks, as with those of the black sailors and seamen working in 18th century Atlantic ports. Established maroon communities in Jamaica, Suriname, and Brazil formed elaborate systems for defense, communication, and subsistence, frequently involving the collusion of those who remained on plantations. Rebellions plagued slaveholders and colonial governments throughout the era of transatlantic slave trade and slavery, most famously during the Age of Revolutions on the French Caribbean islands of Guadeloupe, Martinique, and Saint-Domingue, now Haiti. In Saint-Domingue, enslaved people allied themselves with various free people of color in the colony to transform their rebellion into a full-scale revolution that brought an end to slavery in French colonies within three years. So if we go back a little further to Africa before colonization, so we know that Africa was invaded and colonized by various European countries. But if we look at Africa before colonization, we see that there was already a history of slavery that had been imposed by Muslim people. And not only slavery, so we know that the Muslims started these vast trade routes. So initially they were obviously trading in commodities like ivory and various other things. You know, the trade routes crisscrossed Africa and the trade routes didn't end in Africa. They continued on through Europe and Asia. And so, you know, goods were being transported along these routes. And along the way, they started to transport people as commodities as well. So I'm going to read a little bit from an article that is also from slaveryandremembrance.org. And this just talks a little bit about pre-colonial Africa. I think it's just helpful for people to get a sense of what was going on in Africa before the Europeans came in and why it was so easy for Europeans to start transporting large numbers of African people as enslaved people out of Africa mainly because this was sort of already being done. So this is just really the Europeans coming in and just ramping it up, I would say. But 
let's get into it a little bit. By the 15th century, Africa was home to hundreds of vibrant, dynamic cultures populating all parts of the vast continent. Within those regions we today call West or Central Africa, for example, diverse groups distinguished themselves from one another through a range of languages, religions, arts, technologies, and evolving worldviews. Ancient trade routes crisscrossed the continent, many of them pathways for the movement of local and international commerce and enslaved people. African traders linked routes from the west coast to distant communities of the Nile and Red Sea. Similarly, trade routes traversed north and south, linking the Sahara with the savanna to the south, as well as to the forested regions of the continent. The best known of these ancient trade routes were those crossing the Sahara. For centuries, caravans of Arab and Berber traders transported African captives from sub-Saharan Africa, trekking along a series of arduous stages to the slave markets of North Africa, the Mediterranean, Asia, and Europe. From the 8th century, demand for African slaves was accentuated by the spread of Islam. The vast networks of trade routes controlled by Muslims were used to capture people and transport African captives far from their homelands. Islamic religion penetrated even farther south deep into West Africa along the East African coast and far into the African interior. Thus, its traders forged new trading links providing goods from Europe and the East which Africans exchanged exchanged for their exports, including slaves. North African Muslims created networks of trade that spanned a vast area of sub-Saharan Africa. African societies were ensnared by foreign slavers on the trading routes and forcibly marched in camel caravans across the Sahara Desert, often enormous distances to markets in the north. The trans-Saharan routes were broken into small sectors with goods and people bartered and sold multiple times to new traders along the route. The end result was that African captives were transported from deep in the continent to the edge of the Mediterranean and even onward to Europe and to empires of the eastern Mediterranean. Berber and Arab trading routes created noticeable African ethnic groups in many major towns around the Mediterranean from Cairo to Istanbul. Traders moved African captives north along the trade routes of the Nile and sold them in Cairo's slave markets, both to local slave owners and for onward sale. Many were women destined for lives as domestic slaves and concubines. These internal trading routes were not devoted solely to the movement of slaves. They were trade routes along which a host of African commodities, ivory for example, were transported north from Africa. Enslaved Africans were often forced to work as porters, carrying other goods being transported north. The trading system survived into the 20th century. European traders and sailors benefited from these links when they began to trade along the coast in the 15th century, acquiring goods and people who were captured from the interior and brought to the Atlantic coast via the African traders' inland trading systems. The Portuguese were originally attracted by the possibility of trading with coastal peoples for gold. In time, the desire for labor in the colonies caused Europeans to demand African laborers to work on their plantations in the Americas and Caribbean. The Atlantic slave trade lasted 366 years, but many Saharan routes survived for the better part of a millennium. That is a thousand 
years. That was a little bit of history on pre-colonial Africa, and the prologue to the transatlantic slave trade is basically the slave trade within Africa. I say within, but we know that people were already being taken out of Africa, and that's why we find these very, very old groups of African-looking people in places that are not Africa. Within certain Berber tribes or communities, we see some people with some definite Negro features, and we think, oh, they must be native to that area, when in reality, it's just they're the descendants of people who were moved to that area. And maybe some of them moved to that area on their own, but there is evidence of there being a slave trade before the transatlantic slave trade. And we also know that that slave trade persisted well into the 20th century, if not the 21st century, after the year 2000. I remember seeing a documentary about a girl who was owned by some Muslim people. I mean, the culture of enslavement there is an interesting one. And it usually is, you know, the power dynamic, the relationship between people and how they cope with the circumstances. Looking at it both from the point of view of the enslaved people and from their enslavers, it's really interesting how people get caught up in a system and it just seems so normal to them, even though deep down it might feel wrong. They just accept it. So I've read a few articles now from slaveryandremembrance.org. I highly recommend that website. The next thing I want to get into is something a little bit more like from the art community. It does have a lot of history in it. They definitely did their research, but this is from hobt.org, which is in the heart of the beast. I think that's what it stands for, heart of the beast, H-O-B-T. So in the heart of the beast, puppet and mask theater. I guess this was a performance they put on from January 17th to February 9th 2003. It was conceived by Alicia Whittington, co-directed by Jola Branner and Alicia Whittington. I'm just going to be reading some stuff because this is chock full of lots of information about Queen Nanny. It's called Queen Nanny, Queen Nanny. Sitting next to a huge black pot on a hot summer night in Ghana, Queen Nanny calls upon the powers of the Obia. Without heat or fire, the pot begins to boil. The ancestors reply. She is summoned to Jamaica to free her brothers and sisters who are held in the bonds of slavery. So this is the story of Grandy Nanny, the woman who became one of Jamaica's founding fathers. The Maroons are one of the many communities of people who had to fight to protect their identities and freedom in the New World. Because much of their history has been preserved in documents written and compiled by their principal oppressors, knowledge of their achievements has been largely limited to their activities as rebels, rogues, and fugitives. That is a quote by Professor Dr. E. Kofi Agorosa from Portland State University. Societies of Maroons, or runaways, make up the core of communities that have preserved their identities as the pioneer freedom fighters of the New World. The colonies of escaped slaves who inhabited Jamaica's interior 200 to 300 years ago in the 17th and 18th centuries are, for many Jamaicans, a symbol of nationalism. In a new, harsh, and mostly hostile environment, hunted down without mercy by colonial forces, these Maroons faced nothing less than a life 
lifetime of fighting to retain freedom and a new society. Their experience is African as well as North American and gives a good example for understanding New World history. The Spanish were the first Europeans known to have settled Jamaica following the arrival of Columbus in 1494. In 1655, England captured the island from Spain during a war. During the confusion, 1,500 African slaves on the island escaped and hid in the forests and mountains of the interior of Jamaica. For the next 150 years, according to an English officer, these ex-slave communities, quote, proved to be a thorn in the side of the British, end quote. The word maroon comes from a Spanish word, cimarron, meaning wild or savage. The maroon villages were well-organized military strongholds, sometimes having to fight off attacks by the British army, sometimes making up treaties with the colonial government. In exchange for peace, maroon villages would promise to help defend Jamaica from attack and help put down other slave rebellions. Probably the most famous of the maroon leaders, was a woman, Grandy Nanny. She was an effective political organizer and military leader, defeating the British in many battles. Despite repeated attacks from the British soldiers on Jamaica, Grandy Nanny's settlement called Nannytown remained under maroon control for many years. One of her brothers was Kujo, leader of a slave rebellion in 1738. Grandy Nanny's history is mostly known from folk stories or history books written by her enemies, but a recent archaeological dig at Nannytown is filling in some of the gaps of how she and her people survived day to day. Nannytown is located in one of the highest and most difficult to reach sites in the Blue Mountains of Jamaica. The town was more easily defended than most other maroon settlements. According to Dr. Agorsa, possibly the most exciting discovery during the 1993 expedition was that Nannytown had pre-African habitation. Although the Spanish thought they had wiped out the native Arawak people, these findings of pots, beads, and flint artifacts show at least some Arawaks escaped enslaved enslavement and death and set up new villages in the remote mountains. Escaped African slaves later arrived and joined the Arawak to make a new and unique maroon community. Maroon artifacts recovered from Nannytown include both military items and things used in everyday life. A list of items found so far include imported porcelain from Holland, wine bottles, glass medicine jars, gun barrels, and musket balls, nails, knives, spearheads, door hinges, clay pipes, grinding stones, coins, and many different kinds of beads and buttons. Jamaica's National Hero Nanny of the Maroons stands out in history as the only female among Jamaica's national heroes. She possessed that fierce fighting spirit generally associated with the courage of men. In fact, Nanny is described as a fearless Asante warrior who used militarist techniques to fool and beguile the English. Nanny was a leader of the Maroons at the beginning of the 18th century. She was known by both the Maroons and British settlers as an outstanding military leader who became, in her lifetime and after, a symbol of unity and strength for her people during times of crisis. She was particularly important to them in the fierce fight with the British during the First Maroon War from 1720 to 1739. Although she has been immortalized in songs and legends, certain facts about Nanny, or Granny Nanny as she was affectionately known, have also 
also been documented. Both legends and documents refer to her as having exceptional leadership qualities. She was a small, wiry woman with piercing eyes. Her influence over the Maroons was so strong that it seemed to be supernatural and was said to be connected to her powers of Obia. She was particularly skilled in organizing the guerrilla warfare carried out by the Eastern Maroons to keep away the British troops who attempted to penetrate the mountains and overpower them. Her cleverness in planning guerrilla warfare confused the British and their accounts of the fights reflect the surprise and fears which the maroon traps caused among them. Besides inspiring her people to ward off troops, Nanny was also a type of chieftainess or wise woman of the village who passed down legends and encouraged the continuation of customs, music, and songs that had come with the people from Africa and that instilled in them confidence and pride. Her spirit of freedom was so great that in 1739, when Quayle signed the Second Treaty, the first was signed by Kujo for the Leeward Maroons a few months earlier with the British, it is reported that Nanny was very angry and in disagreement with the principle of peace with the British, which she knew meant another form of subjugation. There are many legends about Nanny among the Maroons. Some even claim that there were several women who were leaders of the Maroons during this period of history, but all the legends and documents refer to Nanny of the Maroon War as the most outstanding of them all leading her people with courage and inspiring them to struggle to maintain that spirit of freedom, that life of independence, which was their rightful inheritance. Like the heroes of the pre-independence era, Nanny too met her untimely death at the instigation of the English sometime around 1734. Yet, the spirit of Nanny of the Maroons remains today as a symbol of that indomitable desire that will never yield to captivity. Let's get into a book excerpt. The Mother of All of Us, A History of Queen Nanny by Carla Gottlieb. Description. The Mother of All of Us is an analysis of the history of Queen Nanny, the great 18th century leader of the Windward or Eastern Jamaican Maroons. The importance of this leader's struggle against the British colonial empire and its institution of slavery on the island of Jamaica has previously been largely ignored. To correct this gap, oral histories, including myths, legends, songs, ceremonies, and local language are analyzed, as well as written texts including legal documents, journals of the era, historical land grants, and peace treaties, poems, novels, critical texts, texts, historical texts, and children's books. The Maroons of Jamaica were ex-slaves who had escaped from slave ships and plantations to form viable communities in remote and inaccessible parts of the country. Queen Nanny, warrior general, spiritual advisor, and some say messiah to the Maroons, led her people from their base camp of Nannytown in the rugged Blue Mountains of eastern Jamaica to repeat victories against the British at the height of their world domination, particularly from 1724 to 1739. Repeatedly, the Maroons were vastly outgunned and outnumbered, with often 500 half-starving Maroons fighting against 5,000 of the best provisioned and best armed soldiers of the British Empire. But warfare was only one of the talents. In the area of supernatural and religious interests, or science, to the Maroons, Queen Nanny was known as a great healer and extremely powerful Obia woman, holder of secret, sacred African knowledge. The author analyzes the importance of Queen Nanny from cultural, military, historical, and religious points of view. This book marks an attempt to integrate a key figure of New World history into her rightful place as the leader of a critical resistance movement 
in Jamaica in the first part of the 18th century. So that was about The Mother of All of Us, A History of Queen Nanny by Carla Gottlieb. So let's get into another excerpt, Queen Nanny as Obia Woman. Of all the things Queen Nanny is remembered for, her role as the spiritual leader of her people is the one that seems to be the most influential in the minds of the Jamaican Windward Maroons. Contrary to Western conceptualization, African cosmology tends to understand the world as a whole, not compartmentalizing religion separately from poetry, separately from medicine, etc. As such, it is necessary to understand Queen Nanny as a complete entity encompassing the roles of Queen Mother, Warrior, priestess or obia woman, chieftainess, herbal healer, and revolutionary. For the purposes of this analysis, Queen Nanny's roles have been dealt with individually. However, it is important to retain the African conceptualization of Queen Nanny as a summation of her various roles when dealing with each of them. Her personas overlap and intertwine, each one influencing the other. The Maroons conceive of her as a product of all of these aspects. Major Aarons, for example, state that she was a chieftainess, a priestess, a healer, and a military leader who was able to perform miracles, all of these things forming part of the legend of Nanny. As an Obia woman, Queen Nanny was in close communication with the ancestors, the source from which her power was derived. Maroons believe that one's spiritual or supernatural abilities are a power inherited from the ancestors. Hence, Queen Nanny is said to have had a strong bond with her African ancestry, as would be expected. She and her people retained these aspects of traditional African religions and customs much more than their counterparts who remained slaves on the plantations. Queen Nanny and her people were more African than Jamaican or Creole. During the late 18th century, they spoke what has been described by the planter-turned-historian Brian Edwards as, quote, a barbarous dissonance of African dialects, end quote. Edwards goes on to enlighten the reader about the nature of the Maroons' religious practices. He notes all of them attached to the gloomy superstitions of Africa, derived from their ancestors with such enthusiastic zeal and reverential ardor as I can think can only be eradicated with their lives. Okay. The spiritual side of life was very important to the Maroons. It was not separated from other parts of life, and religion itself was not allocated to a certain day of the week for practice. It was incorporated into the military strategies, into the raising of children, and into the daily lives of the people. Edwards notes that the Maroons' gloomy superstitions, read religious practices, were so ingrained that they could only be terminated by terminating the Maroons themselves, which he would have happily seen done. The term obia refers to a person who practices the traditional African religions in Jamaica. The practice itself is known as obi. Edwards defined obi as, quote, a species of pretended magic, end quote. Thus, perhaps he would define nanny as a practitioner in pretended magic. His point of view is necessary to understand the attitudes of the British toward Nanny and her people, but it is not really relevant to a process of developing a general awareness of the religious practices of the Maroons. The first work to be examined in terms of its portrayal of Queen Nanny as a priestess is a children's book entitled Queen of the Mountain by Jamaican writer Phyllis Cousins. Queen of the Mountain describes the struggles of the Maroons both on the east and west sides of the island and goes into some depth about 
about Queen Nanny and her life. Published by the Jamaican Ministry of Education in 1967, the book provides valuable information to school children in a narrative form that is easily understandable. Not all the information given in the book can be backed up with historical evidence, so it is perhaps best to treat this work as fictional with some basis in reality. However, the stories are true to the legends and oral histories within the Maroon communities. Cousins describes Nanny in Queen of the Mountains as follows. She was a warrior, and although a princess, she dealt in witchcraft. Nanny's mother had taught her some mysterious practices. The Maroons thought that Nanny's magical charms brought them victory. They believed in her magic, and she used this to keep them completely obedient to her commands. They were in awe of her and were convinced that she could protect them from harm. That is from pages 17 to 18 of Cousin's book that was published in 1967. The book is called Queen of the Mountain by Phyllis Cousins. That wraps up my brief, maybe not so brief, history of Queen Nanny of the Maroons and a little bit about the history of slavery and resistance to slavery. I hope you found this informative and interesting, and I will be doing follow-up episodes on Queen Nanny of the Maroons and on the practice of Obi or Obia. So, thanks for listening. We are maroons, and we're not afraid of no one. We are maroons, and we're brave and strong. Queen Nanny, and you big boat, yeah. Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor, Queen Nanny. And you big boat, yeah. Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor. Queen Nanny, and did we lead and not a mother, teacher, and protector. Our style can't spoil. Queen Nanny did versatile. She teach we off turn with and make fashion. She teach we off unite with the land, Queen Nanny. Her name Big Boatia, Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor, Queen Nanny. Her name Big Boatia, Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor. This and the peace treaty, she never eager. She know the enemy plan for divide and conquer. Freedom and prosperity was her plan, so she make sure the British give her rights for her land, Queen Nanny. Her name Big Boatia, Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor, Queen Nanny. Her name Big Boatia, Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor. We here with her in and salute with Queen. Reminisce upon her bravery and remember where we've been. Thank your Queen Nanny, we can smile in the street. No, whip over, we back and no, shackle up and with it. Queen Nanny. I am Big Boat, yeah, Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor, Queen Nanny. I am Big Boat, yeah, Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor. We are Maroons, and we're not free than no one. We are Maroons, and we're brave and strong, Queen Nanny. And you big boat, yeah, Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor, Queen Nanny. And you big boat, yeah, Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor, Queen Nanny. And you big boat, yeah, Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor, Queen Nanny. And you big boat, yeah, Queen Nanny. She are we ancestor.
That was a poem by Antoinette the Poet. I included the link for the YouTube video in the description box, so please check it out. I think it's a really cool poem. If you are not familiar with Jamaican Patois, it might be a little bit difficult to understand, but it is an awesome poem, so it's worth looking into. Maybe I'll dissect it in another episode and explain the lyrics. Thank you so much for listening. This is Path of a Green Witch podcast. My name is Andrea.